0: All right Acts chapter 13 all through our study of the book of Acts we've been guided by the words of the resurrected Christ right at the beginning of the book and I've said it multiple times you're probably tired of hearing it but Acts 1 8 is the outline for the whole book Jesus told the apostles you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth Acts 1 8 so that outline governs the whole structure of the book as i've said many times in in acts 13 we're really beginning to reach the point of a systematic advance of the church into the third part of that the remotest parts of the earth Now as you know the move has already started in that direction in Acts chapter 10 God acted to bring Peter together with a Roman centurion named Cornelius It was a major event in redemptive history not only did Peter cross these established boundaries to actually enter a Gentile home but the Lord himself came upon these Gentile converts in the Holy Spirit just as he did on the day of Pentecost to Jewish followers on Pentecost and now to Gentile followers in exactly the same way in Acts chapter 11 the very skeptical Jerusalem church when they heard about that from Peter um, they were persuaded by him that the, the the facts of the case did in fact show that God accepted Gentiles upon the profession of their faith without any other converting to Judaism or anything like that they were welcome And at the end of chapter 11, we were told about the success of the church in winning Gentiles to Jesus in a major city of the Roman Empire, Antioch. Chapter 11, verse 20, it says there were some men of Cyrus, Cyprus and Cyrene who came to Antioch and began speaking to the Greeks also preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them and a large number who believed turned to the Lord so some brothers from Cyprus and North Africa that's where Cyrene is had this idea to reach the Greek inhabitants of Antioch which is a a Greek city a Greek city with a fairly large Jewish population in it but that's 300 miles north of Jerusalem well outside of the Holy Land and we pointed out at that time that Antioch would become the second most important city in early Christianity after Jerusalem. So. Now in fact the text also said there that the the believers were first called Christians there so that's kind of one of those interesting things. Now in chapter 13 we're going to see how the Christians in Antioch began the first formal strategic missionary effort to reach the Gentiles in other parts of the empire with the good news of Jesus Christ. So just like God had to bring Peter and Cornelius together by giving each of them a vision, so God speaks to, uh, prophetically speaks to, the church leaders in Antioch to get this mission started. So Acts 13 begins by introducing us to the leadership team. So let's look at verse 1. Now there were at Antioch in the church that was there prophets and teachers, and then it lists them. Barnabas and Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, and Menaean who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch and Saul. So five men are mentioned. These are the teachers and prophets in the church at Antioch. What is a prophet? A prophet is a recipient of divine revelation. God speaks to prophets. They have a special gift and God infallibly communicates to them. So he can inform them of the future like he did with Agabus. We saw earlier in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 11, verse 28, or um, he can give divine direction for what people should do. Again, infallibly, God's own word through a prophet. And that's what's happening here. Luke mentions prophets because the church is going to receive a word of the Lord through a prophet in our text today. So let's uh, first look at this leadership team. Let's back up a little bit and talk about the teachers and the prophets. It doesn't say who was a teacher and who was a prophet. I mean, obviously, Paul. Being an apostle had a prophetic gift as well, but Barnabas is the first mentioned. We know him. He's a native of Cyprus. So that's where they're going to go. His gift is encouragement. We've talked about that. He's the one that brought Saul to the leadership of the church in Jerusalem. When nobody would talk to Saul when he first came to Jerusalem, nobody wanted anything to do with him because he was he was the grand inquisitor. He was the persecutor of the church, and uh, nobody would deal with him. But Barnabas, always looking on the positive side and being an encourager, brings him to them and they become close and uh, he's welcome in there. We also last week talked about how how perfect Barnabas was with his background and both his personality and gifts to go to the church in Antioch so the Jerusalem church sent him there to examine the thing and he stayed. He ended up staying there. Simeon number 2 they called him Niger. Niger means black in Latin. It's possible um and some people believe that he was racially African, he is from North Africa after all. Um, But uh, Simeon is a Jewish name, it's one of the 12 tribes of Israel, so he could be dark complected, uh, but it might have nothing to do with his complexion at all, that name, that nickname. Um, He might be mixed race, maybe he had a Jewish father or a Jewish mother and and an African um, opposite obviously. But remember the ancient world did not view race through a modern lens they didn't it wasn't tied in with all kinds of things that we think of with all the tension going on racially in our country there there isn't a tainted history between the races people were prejudiced in those days just like in everywhere all the time people have prejudices but it was over culture you know you're from that culture you're different you're weird or tribe that was probably the biggest difference between people way more important than skin color in those days so if they called him Niger, Niger based on his skin, it would have been an endearing name, not a, not a put down or some kind of identity thing or anything like that. It wouldn't have an edge to it at all. It is possible that also that Simeon is one of the key men from Cyrene mentioned in Acts chapter 11 verse 20. Doesn't say he's from there, but the next fellow is, so he, they could have come together. So he could have come to Antioch from North Africa specifically to evangelize Gentiles there. That might be him. So also, some have wondered if this Simeon could be the Simon of Cyrene in the Gospels. Do you remember him? Who'd, who was that guy? Well, he's the man the Romans grabbed and made, them, made him carry the cross of Jesus when Jesus couldn't carry it anymore. So if that's true, if that connection is real, th- this would be a man with a story to tell, right? So we don't know that, but it's possible. The third man is definitely from Cyrene. His name is Lucius. That's a Latin name. And that's all we know about him. Uh, He's from the shores of Tripoli, as we would say in modern times. But um, back then it was called Cyrene. Number four is Menaean. This brother has an interesting backstory. Obviously from a well-connected family, it says he had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch. That would be Herod Antipas, almost certainly. Uh, The man who had John the Baptist killed and who mocked Jesus at his trial. So Menaean was probably... Could have been a nobleman's son that was raised in the Herodian household or it's possible he was part of the royal family himself and um, was some kind of cousin or something like that down the line, some blood connection there. And uh, Luke may have gotten his information about the Herods from him. That's certainly possible. So um, his name is Hebrew though. Uh, He's a Jew. It means comforter. It's from uh, Menahem. So the last person mentioned is Saul the former persecutor, the grand inquisitor, now a humble apostle of the Lord Jesus, called on the road to Damascus and given the assignment to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. So starting in this chapter, uh, the book of Acts is going to become primarily Paul's story. These are the leaders of the church in Antioch, which was a happenin' place, as we say. Uh, these are mature, godly men, uh, eagle, eager to follow the Lord's instructions and directions and eager to pursue missions because that is the great thing to go to the remotest part of the earth and preach Jesus. So they're going to follow the Lord in their missionary activity. So when God communicates to them he knows that they are ready to do that. You know the church should never be in a state of lethargy uh, in the doldrums you know tired without vision without an eagerness to see God work, we should always have a forward looking and positive approach because God does things when we are faithful and you never wanna get to a point where we get tired of serving the Lord. You have to press on even in difficult times and we're sort of in difficult times. So it's time to do that even now. Well, the Holy Spirit speaks in verse two to a church that is intently focused on serving the Lord. So here's what it says. While they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me, the Holy Spirit is saying this through a prophet, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Now it's been years since Saul or Paul as Luke is about to tell us, years since he met Jesus on the road to Damascus. He, But he's not been idle. We've been following his story. It's pretty exciting actually. He evangelized in Damascus when he was first converted. Then he went to Arabia and preached there. He came back to Damascus but had to flee. Remember he was lowered out of a basket out of the window. He was in Jerusalem for a time but that became super dangerous. So the church there sent him home to Asia Minor, Tarsus, which is his hometown where he had grown up. And he'd been working there ever since for the sake of Jesus So if you'll remember, Barnabas went to Antioch by the Jerusalem church, remember to check it out, ended up staying there. He was seeing how all these Gentiles had come to the faith. It was a large Gentile component of the congregation there. And it was a tremendous move by God in that city. And he decided to stay and help. That's why he's one of the five. But he knew where more help could be found because he remembered this guy Saul in Tarsus. And he knew that, he had been called to evangelize the Gentiles ever since the day he met Jesus. Jesus commissioned him on that day to do that. So he brings Saul to Antioch and both men become teachers there. Can you imagine the privilege of sitting under the Apostle Paul's teaching like he's teaching your Sunday school class? Would you do something, would you watch TV instead of come to that? Uh, I don't think so it'd be a great great experience for anyone to sit under his teaching. He also we also learned previously that Paul and Barnabas were sent with a monetary gift to Jerusalem during a famine. And at the end of chapter 12 it says they returned to Antioch with Barnabas's cousin Mark. So Mark's from Jerusalem, he's going with them back to Antioch. So Paul and Barnabas already have a good working relationship, they're friends. Paul has lots of experience and has has had years Of time to really grasp the implications theologically and missionally uh, about what the gospel is what what has really changed from being a Jew to being a Christian so he had a lot of time to develop a mature understanding of the gospel in its relationship to the Old Covenant so as a former Pharisee he would be the man most able to really understand the intricacies of Jewish theology and then as an apostle with receiving the revelation from Jesus he would be the most able to develop a, a theology a Christian theology as well so he's perfect so he's ready to share all that that he's learned with the world so the timing is God set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work for which I have called them says the Holy Spirit and Antioch Bible Church does that very thing in a very formal way verse 3 then when they had fasted and prayed they really brought it before the Lord they laid their hands on them and sent them away so they commissioned them formally like an ordination as missionaries so the way to plant churches in Gentile lands um, starting with Cyprus going to really show us a pattern for how this was going to be done throughout Europe and uh, but they right now they're going to go to Cyprus then to Asia Minor that's the plan for what we commonly call Paul's first missionary journey and so Acts chapter 13 and chapter 14 tell the tale of Paul's first missionary journey he's going to make a loop it's going to start in Antioch go to Cyprus work his way across Cyprus up to Asia Minor hit a number of cities there and then come back to Antioch to report on how it went so let's journey with these courageous evangelists in verse four so being sent out by the Holy Spirit they went down to Seleucia and from there they sailed to Cyprus when they reached Salamis they began to proclaim the word of God in the synagogue of the Jews and they also had John as their helper he's going along with them so that's John Mark he'll be their aid while they do most of the preaching and the teaching and things like that So Salamis is the first city you would come to if you left the coast uh, on the main part, you know, the Holy Land or above there and sailed in a westerly direction. You would hit the eastern coast of Cyprus and that's where Salamis is. Uh, Salamis is a very ancient city. It was founded about 1100 BC um, and there's a synagogue there there's a synagogue in almost all the provinces of the Roman Empire and all the major cities I haven't been to Cyprus but there's still ruins there and if you go look online or something you can see pictures of the columns and there's a pretty well preserved theater the Roman theater there so there was quite a thing that city went out of existence um, with the Arab Muslim invasion so now it's just a ruin nobody built on top of it but uh, there is a synagogue there so the team goes to the synagogue first well Wait a minute, why would they go to the synagogue if their mission is to go reach the Gentiles? Hmm, Let's think about that. You know what, a synagogue is the best place to start reaching Gentiles. We've talked before about God-fearers. Gentiles like Cornelius uh, in, earlier in Acts, Acts chapter 10. Gentiles who worshiped the true God but did not become full converts to Judaism in synagogues all through the Roman Empire, people people were drawn to the God of Israel. So the most easily reached Gentiles would be those who were already worshiping the one God of the Old Testament. So that's a great place to start. Most every synagogue had attracted some Gentiles, and again, not full converts, but worshiping the true God. So there were limits on what they were allowed to do, uh, as far as like going to the temple or things like that go. But um, these Gentiles loved the morals of the Bible and they were very attracted to the idea of the one God a holy God a moral God very superior to paganism and the things they were raised with so Luke doesn't tell us the response of the messages at in Salamis because it wants to move on to this really interesting story uh, as far as Cyprus goes on the other end of the island so we're gonna go west and uh, verse 5 talks about them going there to um, a city called Paphos. so the one thing you should notice as we work through Paul's missionary efforts is his his serious focus on cities you could call it a synagogue city methodology so they were hitting synagogues everywhere they went they would start there but they aimed at major cities it's kind of like a military campaign I mean you get the key cities along key trade routes you hit those with the gospel and you start planting churches there and as the gospel takes root in major cities it will spread to the countryside and the villages surrounding that and it will follow those trade routes those wonderful marvelous Roman roads um, going to the next city and to other parts of the empire so that's all happening here so in Paphos there's one of the most unique encounters in the New Testament very unusual verse 6 when they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos they found a magician a Jewish false prophet whose name was Bar-Jesus, so son of Jesus or Yeshua, it's the same name, Joshua. That's Jesus' actual name. We, Jesus, Jesus is an anglicized name, but that's the same name. So he's the son of a, a Jesus or Yeshua, Yeshua, who was with the proconsul. So this false prophet was with the Roman proconsul, Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence okay or a man of understanding it could translate that so here's another magician kind of like simon magus in acts chapter 8 here he's called a false prophet so making up prophecies like charlatans do today all the time and he's he's called a magician now of course he's not an entertainer kind of magician doing sleight of hand and card tricks he is a magus that's actually the word that's used he's a magus that's where we get the word magi for the wise men that came to 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 bring gifts to Jesus when he was born that's the word that was used Magus is the word that's used of Simon in Acts chapter 8 Simon Magus that's what he's called so the word Magus can mean all sorts of things a wise man a teacher a priest a physician an astrologer a seer an interpreter of dreams a soothsayer a wonder worker a sorcerer those kind of things so in the ancient pagan world all those ideas were kind of bundled together in that word and not that every Magus would be one or the other of these things but he could be any or all of them you know Uh, usually they had some kind of special knowledge that other people didn't have or they would claim a power that other people didn't have so Simon in Acts chapter 8 seems to have been a a wonder worker at least he persuaded people that he was a wonder worker so um, people believed that so they called him the great power of God or something so this Magus in Paphos on Cyprus is first identified here as a false prophet the Greek in the the original Greek text it actually says pseudo prophet that's what he is a pseudo prophet he's a fake prophet that's what Luke actually calls him in the text literally so he was probably more in the business of divining the future and reading omens and chicken guts or whatever that kind of stuff you know and giving you some kind of counsel based on some s- secret knowledge kind of a thing. So we see in verse 7 that he's in the service of this Roman proconsul. That's a governor of Cyprus. He's the main guy on Cyprus for the Roman Empire. Sergius Paulus, Luke describes as a man of intelligence or understanding. Um, he was not a fool, but apparently he was a pagan and, and believed in soothsaying of some kind or these kind of prophetic things like that. And this guy... Uh, that was in his service was obviously good enough at it or clever enough to persuade him that he had some kind of actual powers. So he was very interested in the gospel message that Saul and Barnabas had brought to that end of the island. So verse 7 says this man, Sergius Paulus, summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. He wanted to hear what they had to say. He wanted to hear the good news. Verse 8 but elemas the magician for so his name is translated we'll call him that now Elemus, was opposing them opposing Saul and Barnabas seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith so he's very interested and this guy he's I don't know and I sort of think of uh, Grima Wormtongue in Lord of the Rings he's that kind of a oily character on the side trying to change the mind of the, the ruler there. He starts throwing out arguments and accusations against the missionaries or whatever, whatever he did. um, He was opposed to them. We aren't told why he was opposed to them. Uh, It could be that he just saw his own position be in jeopardy because these guys were bringing something new and the, the governor seemed very interested in that and he might turn away from him and give them all of his attention. It's possible that this uh, pseudo-prophet was in league with demonic forces. I think that's certainly true sometimes in some of the more mysterious cults and prophetic movements that we see today. Um, That wouldn't be surprising. I mean Satan loves to use superstition and witchcraft to draw people in to open them up to satanic uh, and demonic Activity, so that's possible that that was going on here. Demons, as we know from the Gospels, don't like it when Jesus shows up, so maybe that's why he's flipping out. Maybe he's got a demon. But we don't see Paul deal with any spirits here, casting out anything or anything like that, so that might not be the case. He might just be a a total phony baloney guy and uh, he's worried about himself. That could be all of it. But um, he is becoming a problem apparently he was being really annoying when Paul and Barnabas were sharing about Jesus with Sergius Paulus maybe Elymas wouldn't shut up I don't know what was going on or he wouldn't let them finish a sentence or a thought or, uh, without muttering or, or raving or trying to intervene and interject his own thoughts or something like that but Saul has kind of had enough so, um, and this is the verse where Luke takes the name Saul and lets you know that he's also called Paul and then for the rest of the book he's going to be basically Paul but um, that's right there in verse nine. So Paul's kind of had enough. But Saul, who's also known as Paul, verse nine, filled with the Holy Spirit, fixed his gaze on him, on Elemas, and said, you who are full of deceit and fraud, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, you will not cease to make crooked the ways of the Lord. That's a question actually. Will you not? Cease to make crooked the ways of the Lord and then he says verse 11 now behold the hand of the Lord is upon you and you will be blind and not see the sun for a time so and immediately a mist and a darkness fell upon him and he went about seeking those who would lead him by the hand now that's kind of interesting because that happened to Saul too remember Jesus blinded him for a few days so this guy gets blinded yikes that's a really unusual miracle you just don't see anything related to apostolic activity bringing that kind of judgment on somebody in a really dramatic way like that they don't do that Um, they heal they don't blast or curse or anything like that and technically this might not be a curse um, but things like this just don't happen in the New Testament Jesus cursed a tree but um, hurting people even temporarily like this or that's pretty unusual. The only other case I can think of is Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5 where they drop dead for lying to the Holy Spirit. And on that day, Peter was just announcing what, was gonna, what God was going to do because of their activity. And Paul's actually doing that here too. It doesn't say he cursed him directly, but it, he, he tells him what the Lord is going to do. The hand of the Lord is upon you and this is going to happen because you've been such a jerk today. That kind of thing. So more important to me are the words of Paul that says you are full of deceit and fraud you son of the devil you enemy of all righteousness that's pretty strong language and you know what sometimes there's a place for language like that stronger language there's a time and a place to call out charlatans and deceivers generally when dealing with opponents of Christianity or opponents of our faith or people that are against us We're called upon to be gentle. That's the norm. That's what we should usually be. First Timothy chapter 2 verse 25 it says the Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome but be kind to all able to teach patient when wronged with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition if perhaps God may grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth. There's there's a lot of niceness there (laughs) in that description of how we're supposed to be that's the norm but there are times when son of the devil and enemy of all righteousness really needs to be called out uh, directly called out and that calls for wise discernment on our parts our general demeanor our, our heart should be one of gentleness but sometimes things need to be called out for what they actually are there's not many times when gentleness is not the thing called for but sometimes sometimes it's appropriate to blast people who disagree or oppose the faith Um, but if you think that's always the time to do that it's always right to blast people you're probably wrong because gentleness is what we're told to be Uh, so don't be like that don't be a a blaster of people and oh you evil villain yelling at people and that kind of stuff Uh, don't be like that don't always be ready to slam people especially in lesser things but uh, while gentleness needs to be the main characteristic this was kind of a serious situation so it called for something stronger and by serious I mean a man's soul was in jeopardy Sergius Paulus wanted to hear Elemas was interfering with him hearing so Paul calls him out. So, I'm pretty comfortable calling false teachers and false prophets charlatans, which is a kind of a strong thing to say, but I'm comfortable doing that when it's obvious that that's what they are because they lead people away from the real Jesus. that's serious, that is serious. They misrepresent God for gain for either influence or power over people or money or all of that now, that's a bad thing they're they're making they're making crooked the straight ways of the Lord, and that's bad they're they're wolves who are praying p-r-e-y-i-n-g on people instead of praying p-r-a-y-i-n-g for them right so the whole point about wolves is that they want respect they want these titles given to them um, but they don't belong to them so this situation before the proconsul is very serious he's a he's a, a true seeker after the truth he wanted to hear his soul was in jeopardy so Alimus needed to be silenced for a little bit notice too he was not permanently blinded um, this was a temporary situation but it did definitely impress the proconsul. Uh he had some trust in these magical arts of Alemas but these Jesus men seemed to have a lot more power a lot greater power that he could not undo so verse 12 then the proconsul believed when he saw what had happened being amazed at the teaching of the Lord that's an interesting expression because there was an act but he was amazed at the teaching of the Lord so it was the whole event and what they were saying included that impressed him and it says he believed and history tells us that the church grew very strong in Cyprus. Uh, it makes sense God did something that won the proconsul's loyalty so he would be there to, as long as he was ruling there he'd be there to defend the church or protect it at least while he was in charge. So now I want to back up a bit and talk more about those words of Paul to Elemus where he says you are full of all deceit and fraud you son of the devil you enemy of all righteousness again very strong language there what makes a person a son of the devil it's not so much that he practices magic though that's evil it, it's really that he promotes lies that's the main thing here he believes lies and tells lies things that are not true he makes crooked what is straight that's what paul says jesus was very clear and forthcoming to those in the leadership at his time that wanted him dead if you remember john chapter 8 listen to the w- lord's words there in john 837 and this discussion is all about fathers So Jesus said, I know that you are Abraham's descendants, yet you seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. I speak the things which I have seen with my father, therefore you also do the things which you have heard from your father. They answered and said to him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said, if you are Abraham's children, do the deeds of Abraham. But as it is, you are seeking to kill me, a man who has told you the truth which I heard from God. This Abraham did not do. You are doing the deeds of your father. They said to him, we're not born of fornication. Maybe that's a cut at Jesus there thinking Mary wasn't married when you, she was pregnant. You, we were not born of fornication. We have one father, God. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I proceeded forth and have come from God for I have not even come on my own initiative but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I am saying? It is because you cannot hear my word. You are of your father the devil and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him whenever he speaks a lie he speaks from his own nature for he is a liar and the father of lies there is so much there in that passage you should go back and really think it through that's satan's primary thing is that he's a liar his very nature jesus says is to to lie and to promulgate lies that's what he does and humanity because we are fallen creatures we are eager recipients of these lies he's good at lying and we are prone to believe his lies we accept them and we often pass them on to other people and that way human beings are his children the children of the devil I've been reading um, a new book by David Paulson he's one of my favorite kind of counselor Christian guys but it's a little book called safe and sound and it's on spiritual warfare and he says this reflecting on on Jesus words in John chapter 8 This passage, he says, encapsulates the core aspects of Satan's identity and purposes and works and motivations and intentions. Satan is intentionally evil and he is up to no good. He has desires that he wants us to follow. He is a father and he raises children. He disciples his children in evil and that's why the world is the way it is Satan raises children spiritual children but my main point is that we're not just talking about leaders or people who claim special powers or people of influence something else that Powellson says is really helpful here he says the devil quote does not only appear when something unusually strange is going on the real devil is utterly normal and his role is fully integrated into daily life mundane evil is the devil's business that's something to not forget so listen we are sinners without a devil if the devil weren't here we'd be sinning anyway we're surrounded by sinners so we're all in this together and we encourage each other in sin that's how human beings are but the devil provides the lies for us he tells us lies about what will make us happy or that our happiness is more important than even God most people think their personal happiness is more important than God a lot of Christians in their heart think that way too sometimes that's really dangerous if you believe that some some kick or some pleasure of this world is more important than being loyal to God then you're a fool and you believe lies and you are making crooked the straight ways. Humans were designed by God, made by God to delight in Him. We're supposed to delight in God and by extension we're to delight in all that is good and right and true as God defines those things. The lie is that if there is a God, He was made for us. He's about us and we're the center of everything. The lie is that we are in charge of ourselves and we get to choose and determine what's right and wrong. So we won't sacrifice anything for him or give up anything for him, but he'd better provide for us. That's, that's the religion of most people. The lie is we decide what's right and wrong, not God. The lie is God is not important enough for us to honor and serve him. The lie is that we should have all the delights this world has to offer because we're missing out. If we say no to the world, that's a lie. There are thousands of lies out there that Satan has created for us. And every person is tempted to believe some of them. So there are lies for young people and there are lies for old people. There are lies for respectable people and there are lies for wicked people. There's lies for everybody. There's lies for self-righteous people and there's lies for the wildest sinners on earth. The enemy of God Taylor makes lies for you. He's got in his basket of lies ones that are just right for you that he wants you to believe. He studied you and he knows where you're weak and where your um, predispositions are. And if you're the a self-righteous kind of person then you think you're better than everybody else. He'll tell you that lie that you are morally superior to other b- people and you're not really that bad. If you're a wild wicked person he'll tell you the lie that that doesn't really matter that there's no accountability and no judgment for that and there's, there's not going to be any hell or anything like that on judgment day there's always a lie for wherever you are the only solution to lies all the different kind of lies there are the only solution is to walk humbly with God every day and to immerse yourself in the truth and that's what's found in scripture humbly walking with God and immersing yourself with truth that's the only way to expose lies and to let other people correct you that's part of the humble walking You let other people point out if you're off or you're um, making something crooked that God made straight. If you're starting to do that and somebody warns you about that, you go, oh yeah, thank you for telling me that. If you don't know that Jesus is supremely worthy of your love and your devotion, you already believe the biggest lie. So say hello to your father below if that's what you believe. You're his child. But if you cast that lie aside, cast it away from you and give Christ the honor and the love and affection that is due to him, then he will become for you the most wonderful and all-sufficient Savior. And he will have you restored and reconciled to the true Father, the God who made you and you'll live with him forever. That's how the lie gets corrected. Cast the big lie aside and embrace the Lord Jesus. He is the way, the truth, and the life. Let's pray. Lord, you alone are worthy. Everything else pales to insignificance next to you. Keep us on the straight path, the, the way of truth. Enlighten us by the Holy Spirit. Open our minds and our hearts to what is true and right and help us to love those things so that other things look Ugly to us and distasteful to us. Don't let us be deceived, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. All right, next week the missionaries are gonna hit into Asia Minor. That's where we'll be.